Hi there, I'm Paul Mitchell, leadership coach, author, and founder of The Human Enterprise. Well, welcome to Leaders for Life Radio, where we interview leaders from business, from sport, the arts, and community. Today, I'll be talking with Kian McLaughlin, who hails from Dublin, Ireland, and is the CEO of Trinity Perspectives. He's a real leader in sales transformation, win-loss reviews, and a, and a great keynote speaker for your next uh, kickoff, particularly in the area of customer focus. I know Keen personally, and he's a, a, a great guy, passionate about the sales profession and customer centricity. In this interview, he'll share uh, both sales and influence strategies, particularly in relationship to our current context of COVID-19. Let's welcome Keen to Leaders for Life Radio. Well, hi, Keen, and thank you so much for, for joining us today in Leaders for Life Radio. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and it's lovely to be here, Mitch. Well, lovely to love you to have you with us, and already our listeners would have noticed those lovely lyrical tonations in your voice. Um, and uh, because of that, I'm going to make a very racist comment up front in the fact that the fact that you're Irish means you're a storyteller, and I and I know for a fact personally what a great storyteller you are and how good you are at. And in fact, I guess you place so much emphasis on storytelling as a, as a way of influencing. You've got a chapter of it in your book. And from memory on page 17, you even tell us about your story um, in terms of your life and the direction it took. So maybe you could kick off with, uh, with that story for us. Sure. Uh, look, I, I, storytelling is, is hugely important in, in my life, and I think it's something which is a, a great skill for anyone to master, and we Irish have, a, have a, a reputation for telling lots of stories. That's not a particularly pleasant story, I have to admit. Um, you know, I spent the, the founding part of my career in the IT sales industry in Australia and, and learned a lot and loved much of what I did, not all of it. Um, but one of the things for me was that I, I suffered with stress and the way stress manifested itself uh, for me was was in health issues, specifically heart issues. And what I talk about in the book was um, being being in a, an ER room and um, being in a position where my heart had been out of rhythm for a couple of days and and the doctor's advice was that um, they probably needed to stop and restart my heart in order to try and you know get some rhythm back into it. And that for me was, you know, you hear about people sort of having an epiphany or rock bottom or, or, or a certain moment. And I think that was a moment for me where I thought, you know, I really need to, um, I need to take stock and I maybe need to use this as a bit of a, um, a lightning rod to, to change my direction or do something different. And so it wasn't immediately after that, but it was pretty short, shortly after that, that I became a, a cubicle escapee and jumped ship from the corporate world to set up my own business. <laughs> And one of the things I wanted to do was was help other sales professionals avoid ending up in that position um, through stress. Because for me, it was a health issue. For others, it's you know it's an addiction issue, or or it has impacts on family or uh, relationships. Um, and so, so part of what I set out to do was actually to to help address that issue and, and help others avoid making some of the the errors that I made in my own uh, early years. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because we can't do anything well if we're under a state of stress. It doesn't matter whether we're playing a sport or playing a musical instrument, doing a presentation or, or influencing someone uh, in regard to a selling context. I mean, stress stress never helps. And what's also interesting is I think many sales professionals and, and influence professionals, and we're all influencing in some way, 
are feeling even more stressed with COVID nineteen. Not just about COVID nineteen, but how do you how do you approach someone? How do you uh, you know make sure you're authentic and real and, and caring? And in, in, rather than feeling quite icky in regard to selling to others in this situation, tell us a bit about that. What are your thoughts on that? Look, it's, I mean, it's the sort of the $64,000 question at the moment because, um, you know, all of these businesses are still are still moving forwards and, and have an expectation on their teams, albeit that they might be working from home, that they're going to keep the lights on and keep the engine running and keep selling things. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have sales conversations. And some of those might be with existing customers, but many of them need to be with new prospects and people you've never spoken to before. And at the best of times, picking up the phone and Reaching out to someone you've never spoken to before is, is you know, is difficult and can be awkward. But doing it during a pandemic adds a, a whole other layer of of uh, awkwardness and and um, stress because you don't know what they're going through. You don't know what their business is going no. through, and no. so you you run the risk of of not only appearing tone deaf but actually uh, creating such a terrible first impression that not only do you not have that conversation but you never have any future conversations. So that's that's a hugely difficult position to be in and and that's what a lot of people are trying to navigate so how do you navigate i mean you you you, you want to help you want to show that you're there to help and yet it might come across how how i you know hey where are you coming from i can't you see what we're going through where's the empathy here where's the care yet at the same time you you still got to uh um got to make those sales because I, I often have said to my son see that hospital over there see that school there see that retirement village none of that happens unless someone sells something so what do you do any any tips about how people can approach that that uh, that first that first encounter look i think there's a clue in the question the way you asked it because i think leading with empathy leading with um a genuine care factor for the other person and and where they're at and what's happening in their life and what's happening in their business asking can you you know help so sort of leading with the heart of a of, of a teacher rather than the soul of a salesperson so what can i do to help is there anything we can do to support um that seems to be probably the best way of of um getting into the conversation starting things off and then you move through it and what happens very quickly is if you've been genuinely empathetic and 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 um authentic in yourself the conversation naturally flows from there now it doesn't mean that a piece of business will immediately happen but what a lot of organizations are doing at the moment is they're doubling down on customer care they're doubling down on on relationship building in the hopes that these are the things which um when we when we start to uh, come out of the lockdown will have deepened the relationship to such a degree that the business will then flow through for other organizations it's recognizing where are they at because some businesses are thriving and reaching out to those businesses and saying we you know we we know it's all systems go how can we help what can we do so so being very specific in terms of um the empathetic questions up front but also asking how can we help and how can we support seems to be the best approach if you if you ignore it and pretend you know the elephant doesn't exist in the room that just comes across as as not just um unsympathetic but incredibly inauthentic and makes people feel absolutely icky as you described so doing the opposite and being being open to sharing what's happening in your life as well you know in terms of home-based learning in terms of you know um fear about work in terms of all those things just just being yourself um gives them permission to be themselves and that tends to to relax people into into having the right conversation so it would seem to me that 
it's what we would normally do as a, as a great sales profession, professional on steroids. We have a program, why should anyone be led by me? It could be, why should anyone be, uh, be or buy from me? And that is one of the, the nuances or the statements in that program is be more of yourself with skill. And I, I guess what I'm hearing you say, just be yourself. And uh, I know the Greeks in Delphi in the, the Temple of Apollo was that they had a sign, know thyself. So although we teach people in selling a lot of sales skills, to me what, what you've said is it's just so important that you know who you are, you know who's showing up. You can't show up authentically if you don't know who you are. What are your thoughts on that in regards to salespeople being very clear on their values? Look, I think it's it's really interesting. I work with um, a whole gamut of salespeople, but I do get to work with a lot of young younger salespeople, which is a, a real privilege and one that you know, and I'm I'm absolutely delighted to be able to do. But many of those individuals are early in their careers, so they don't have a ton of stories. They don't have a ton of battle scars from deals you know won and lost in the past. You know, often they're given a laptop and a script, and they're told to get out there and start selling, and and that's a really really difficult position to be in. So, in that scenario, my advice would be. Be honest and let people know. Look, I'm 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 still very very new, or I'm I'm still relatively yeah, new yeah. in this area. I'm still learning in my research, in the conversations I've had up until this point. This is what I'm hearing. How does that How does that resonate with you? And and you're almost giving people permission to then become you know more of a coach and an advisor to you than you pretend, pretending to be a, a subject matter expert on a topic that they know way more about and and just you know getting found out. So. Being authentic also means being honest when you don't know the answer or where you don't have the depth of experience. And once you do that, um, again, people will tend to relax. But if we pretend we're we're something we n- we're not, that's when you know when the wheels fall off, and that's when um, the phone calls end very very quickly. You know, I know a lot of senior executives who are incredibly frustrated at. Um, having a meeting with someone who, you know, firstly, maybe, you know, significantly less experienced and more junior than them, but somebody who focused on just getting the meeting and all of a sudden they have the meeting and they don't know what to do with the, with the yeah. precious time of the individual sitting on the table, you know, across from them. And so they blow it. And and, and that's a real um, issue for a lot of, you know, not just younger salespeople, salespeople in general is it, what are you showing up with? What are you showing up in terms of the insights and the value you can bring and the relationships you have? Because if you're not showing up with any of those things, you're you're making yourself a commodity that will be um, won't be relevant for too much longer. It's a it's an interesting balance, isn't it? Like you, one of the things that happens is if you have the experience, then if you're not careful, you can be talking at your client. And but if you don't have that experience, you often may not know what what questions to ask. I can remember a dimensioning study that we did when I was with Price Waterhouse. It was a jewelry client. I won't name the client. But we went around and we had a look at uh, who were the best salespeople. And uh, certainly those that had experience um, and, were, and were great at asking questions really stood out. But the next second best salespeople were the more junior ones. And so when we, in, in regard to the, 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 the amount they sold and the dollar value of it, so when we actually interviewed them and had actually looked at them, um, you know, hands-on in the, in the various stores, what we found is because they didn't know much about, say, diamonds or whatever, they would ask, you know, when's the wedding? Have you got anything planned yet for the reception? <laughs> Are you going away on a honeymoon? So, uh, and that w- they were genuine questions because that's all they uh, 
or they, they could do. So I think there's wonderful balance between knowing your stuff and then asking questions. You, you raised another great point, which I think is that, and that's about currency. There's many, many different currencies around, and I'm not just talking uh, money or, or, or Bitcoin. I think the currency of COVID is mutual trust and respect. And what I hear you saying is just ringing up and saying, how are you? How can I help? What can I do for you? Uh, without even thinking about that sale, builds a currency that long-term is going to be so valuable. Do you see salespeople doing those sorts of calls at the moment, Ken? Not just salespeople, entire businesses. I know of a number of very large global businesses and their whole mandate to their sales team at the moment is we don't we don't want you to focus on just making sales. We want you to focus on uh, finding ways to help. We want you to focus on helping right. to solve problems that are, are occurring in your clients' businesses as we speak. So those problems might be around um, moving to a you know to a socially distanced workforce who are all working from home. Those problems might be around where is your data sitting. They might be around security. They might be around any number of other different things. But it's go hunting for the for the new problems that are occurring and help your customers solve those and start conversations about um, what's happening, what's new, what's different. Um, And that might be around cost saving. It might be around um, uh, security. It might be around any number of different things. But if you go in with, and it goes back to what you talked about in those jewelry stores. If you go in with with, um, a, a mindset around asking great questions and being curious and doing really good discovery, then, and this is a, this is a, you know, a, a golden rule for any sales professionals: customers will teach us how to sell to them if we if we ask them the right questions, and then we we shut up for long enough to to listen to their answers and and then ask them the follow up questions. And why is that important? What are the implications of that? Oh, wow, that's fascinating. And, and we genuinely care, and we're going in without an agenda of I really want to sell you something. So one of the things that I say to salespeople, young and old, is just focus on earning the right to move to the next step. Don't focus yes. on making a sale because. Mm. By focusing on making a sale, you're putting a ton of pressure on yourself, and then almost certainly you're pushing a portion of that pressure onwards to to your customer and, or prospect, and they they would feel it too, wouldn't they? Hundred percent. Yeah, you can feel it. Yeah. You walk in, you walk into a shop, and a shop assistant comes up and says, "Can I help you?" And you go, "No, no, no, I'm just browsing." Because even though you might want to buy something at some point, you're not at that stage of your of your your journey mm. just yet. You're in the browsing stage, so. So what we need to do is recognize where our customers are at in their journey, meet them there, and then earn the right to to walk the rest of the journey with them by doing a really good job at each of those, you know, little intersections or little interfaces. And if if the interface we're talking about is find out what's happening in their business and see if we can help in some way, shape, or form, then that's our sole purpose. It's it's dig into that, find out if we can help, and then go away and, and do the thing that we said we're going to do and come back and make their lives a little bit easier. And ultimately then... You, you, you know, you get that back in spades, the, the, the reciprocity at some point in the future. So that's very much, you know, paying it forwards rather than worrying about what are we going to sell today. Brilliant. And it's, it's, a, it's a maxim for life. It's a maxim for change. It's a maxim for influence and selling. That's meet people, meet people where they're at. And I've got to say, here's a personal plug for you, knowing you for quite a while, you do that so beautifully. You're always showing up with that total mindset of how can I help? How can we remain curious? How can I simultaneously provoke whoever I'm, I'm, I'm working with or talking with to take them to a, to a new level? So, on that, as the CEO of uh, 
Trinity perspectives, uh, which we know uh, we've given a bit of an intro here earlier on. We know it's a sales and consulting company um, involved with business transformation, particularly sales transformation, and also win-loss analysis. Um, Give us a bit of an idea of what that involves and why that's so important. Sure. So, you know, if you picture me lying there in that bed, staring up at the, you know, the cork tile ceiling in the hospital thinking, how have I got myself in this position? One of the things that had contributed to that was the fact that, you know, you give three months, six months of your life to a sales cycle. Um, You you know, it, it can take a huge toll from a stress perspective, but also you're, you're very invested in it. And then at the end of that process, the customer makes a buying decision and they go with you or they go with someone else. And in the industry I come from, the technology industry, the, the default setting is when that happens, at best, a couple of us sit around in a room and sort of, you know, talk for a little while about what we think might have happened, and then we move on to the next one. And, mm. you know, I've played mm. sport all my life, and that just struck me as, as just a really strange way, you, you, you know, to, to approach um, the, the, the conclusion of a sale. Because if you've been very professional throughout a sales engagement, why aren't we doing some level of analysis? Why aren't we trying to understand, well, what actually happened and why did we lose this deal when we thought we were going to win it? And how do we win the next one? And what can we learn from this? None of those questions were being answered to my satisfaction. And so, you you know, I did the age old thing. I started researching, is there a way to get them answered? And when I couldn't find a, a good response to that, I just set out to answer those questions myself and ultimately started reaching out directly to the end customers and saying, hey, can I come in and spend an hour and sit down and just kind of pick your brains on the process that you went through and ask you some questions about myself and my colleagues and ultimately try and extract some value from from the sales cycle. And amazingly, most customers were really happy to participate. And maybe even more surprisingly, the stuff they they told me was quite often at odds with what we had internally believed to be the, the, the things that influenced their buying decision. And so I, a business was born. I set out to to start solving that problem for other mm. businesses around the country and ultimately around the world. And ten years on, we're we're still doing it. And we're having a ton of fascinating, incredibly deep conversations with C suite leaders and decision makers about what actually influenced them to say to to say yes, or in some cases to say no. And what what I love about that is often the people make that delineation between. Uh, is, that, is that how I say the word the, between uh, sales and marketing? What you're doing here is you're coming in with a much stronger, call it customer centricity or customer orientation or market orientation. You're really saying, hey, not like here's our product, what do you think? But you're, or, or service, what do you think? But you're really asking, you know, why did you buy or why did you not buy? So you're starting with the market, which in itself shows that that you actually care have you got any stories around how people thought it might have been you know their incredible good looks and it turned out to be something (laughs) else or or how they thought it was a a particular uh part of your service but it might be one other small thing there must be a lot of stories i would think how long do we have mitch there's there's so many and and wow you know i'll tell you a couple of quick stories so so one piece of feedback we had um from a customer and they had picked a vendor so this was a win review we were doing and they said this vendor's tender response was so appallingly bad that 
it, it very nearly didn't make the first round. So they had, I think they had 15 compliant tender responses. This is a very, very large um, piece of business. And they knocked a couple of them out because they didn't meet certain criteria. And a, and a bunch of them got sort of put through to the first round. And then they had a maybe pile. So they literally had a pile on a, on a boardroom table of all these tender responses. And this particular vendor's tender response was on the maybe pile. And the reason it was there was because they did what so many businesses did. They received a tender and they went, oh, we haven't really got anyone to do this. And we haven't got time. So they broke it up into pieces, farmed it out to different people who all responded to different sections, then flicked it back together, Frankenstein's bride sort of cobbled it together at the 11th hour <laughs> and, and, and flicked it over the fence to the customer at five to five on a Friday afternoon. And that was their first impression. And so this customer said, you know, we put weeks of effort into building this tender before we sent it out. And this was the first impression we had of this, of this particular vendor. And... By just by sheer good luck, one person on the customer side saw something that they thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let's take a closer look at these guys. So they brought them into the first round. And as a result, then a whole lot of different things happened, much of which related to really, really good um, uh, listening skills. And then actually deviating slightly from the tender, but saying, look, we could do it this way, but we think this would be a better outcome for you. And, and actually leading the customer and, and partnering with them and a whole lot of other great stuff that they did. But all of that could have could have been for naught because they just did such a poor job. So the CEO who got that feedback from from us as to why they had won this bid, but they they actually should have lost it. Literally the next day went out and and implemented a, a proper formal bid management process in their organization and said we are never going to we're never going to take that risk again. So so that was just a very very simple but very powerful. Um, exercise. They would never have known how close they were to losing that piece of business if they hadn't actually, you know, um, sought some feedback from the customer. It's a, it's an actual. It's a major, major learning or thing that needs to be reinforced. It's just because we sell something doesn't we really mean that we know what it's like to be the buyer. Uh, in, in my particular area, I might sell coaching services or training services. And I think, well, I've, I've been in the game for a while now. I know what people want. I really don't. I really don't unless I've been that buyer. So rather than making that massive assumption, what I love what you're doing is putting hubris aside, and there's a lot of hubris in ego, you're coming in with humility and you're saying, hey, we either did really well, can you let us know why, or we stuffed up, can you also let us know why, because we want to learn. And I would think in terms of currency, that, hey, you may have lost that one, but the, but you may have set yourself up for great success further down the track, which is which is which is well, good. Uh, and that's I've exactly to, right. Go. We we mm. we did one the other day, or very very recently, and it was a loss review. And the the vendor we were working with was working on another very very significant piece of business for the same industry vertical. So they took this loss review, which was you know detailed forty five minute interview with the CIO of this company, and they then used that to pivot their strategy on this much much bigger deal that they were working on, which is still which is still ongoing. So they haven't won it yet, but it, it gave them the playbook for one of their key competitors as to why they you know they kept losing because they just didn't understand. And as soon as the customer explained it, they said, "Look, they did this, and from a risk." perspective we felt much more comfortable with that and they did risk and they did this and from a pricing perspective that made more sense and all of a sudden it was like their eyes opened and they could see this stuff they had earned the right to this feedback but didn't have a mechanism to take it off the table and that's all we were doing was really just tapping into to to the feedback they had already earned the right to 
It, it's, it's a great example, too, of this fixed versus growth mindset that Dweck, Harold Dweck talks about. Fixed mindset, here's our offer, hey, we lost it, let's move on to the next one. Growth mindset, hold it, let's get the feedback, learn, readjust and go forward. So it's a, a maxim for life, not just, not just selling. We have a statement which you may have heard before. It's one of, it's not mine, it's from a guy called Barry Oshry from a program we do on partnership. And I think it really sums it up beautifully, and that is come in early as a partner, not late as a judge. Because if you come in late with anything, we're forced to even judge your offer. But the earlier you can Mm -hmm. come in, and what I mean by that is asking the questions, uh, getting close and so forth. We're doing a job at the moment and we're, we're going out to the field. We're interviewing not only the leaders, we're interviewing the board. We're also interviewing uh, the direct reports of the team we'll be working with. In, in other words, we've, we've got that whole stakeholder uh, environment uh, because we're trying to get into the customer's shoes pretty much the way that you've talked about. Well, it's so funny, t- Mitch, let me yeah. just quickly on that one. Mm. You know, I, I'll often run you know, offsites or, or workshops and that sort of thing. And I'll always ask um, whether we can bring a customer in, um, you know, on one of the afternoons, usually maybe the second day yes. or the third day. And, and you know, something which is I find very funny and frustrating at the same time is, you know, I'll work really hard to deliver three days of, of great content, make it really engaging and interactive and all that good stuff. And at the end, when you get the feedback from the audience, you say, you know, what did you really enjoy? They're like, oh, key and stuff was, was, was really great. It was fascinating. But having the customer in the room and having – the opportunity to talk to them in a in a way that's sort of open and and you know Chatham House rules they can ask any questions. It's just so valuable for for sales teams and not just sales teams for marketing and and legal and pricing and everyone. And yet we do it so rarely. And it's I'm constantly puzzled by why we never you know invite the customer inside the tent more often and earlier on in the process for our product development conversations and for a whole lot of other things rather than doing the, you know, Mm. if we build it, they will come philosophy, which, you know, hasn't been proven to be that successful too often. And it it is amazing, not that I've done that much customer work, but years ago when I did it, and I think things have changed now, I would offer that suggestion. And the number of times people said, oh, no, I don't think we should be airing our dirty linen in public. (laughs) <laughs> in other words, there was some problems. We didn't want the customer to know that, which is just it, it reeks of the fact that we're it's almost like a cover up, or we're not yeah. comfortable learning, we're not comfortable sharing those vulnerabilities, and it it, it doesn't it doesn't uh, feel or smell like a partnership. Or in the words of one of my favourite movies, it's not really the vibe of the thing, as we say. That's exactly right. So, so tell me, um, we, we've talked a lot about. Uh, the, the importance of empathy, the importance of adding value, the importance of starting where the customer's at, the importance of coming in not with a fixed mindset, but with an open mindset, asking questions, looking for where you can help, not just pushing a product, earning the right. Um, do you think COVID-19, or maybe um, maybe ask a more open question, how do you think COVID-19, if you do think it will, will possibly change the world of business and in particular selling? Look, that's a great question, and, and you know, I, I I don't think I certainly have all the answers to it, but I definitely think it will change. Um, I think one of the things which is already happening and will be happening more and more is there'll be less of the face-to-face interactions because I think we've all become a little bit more used to the you know the working from home um, situation. But even even when we do go back into an office environment, customers have learned that they don't need to have a vendor in front of them from 
you know, from the get-go. So they may bring you in a little bit further down the track than they had done in the past because they still want to see your, the whites of your eyes and they still want to see what you're going to be like to work with and is there a good cultural fit and can they trust you and all those things. But I think that's going to happen further down the funnel. So one of the things which businesses are going to have to get much, much better at is becoming easier to do business with. Uh, because I think a lot of organizations actually focus too much on their own internal process and less on, on you know, what the customer wants and needs. And as a result, they've created a process which is a little bit unwieldy and a little bit time-consuming. And now, as the, the lines between business-to-business and business-to-consumer are beginning to blur, the, uh, customers who, who who live in business land actually want an experience which is closer to the experience they have in in consumer land, and as a result, a whole lot of businesses are having to fundamentally reshape how they how they go to market and reshape how they pay their people, how they present their solutions. Otherwise, they're you know they're just too hard to to buy from, and they're just not getting the wallet share that they used to. So so there's a lot of change happening in terms of the dynamics of how businesses are working. But from from a human perspective, I think. I think we might just let our guards down a little bit more, Mitch. I think we might yes, just yeah. show up a little bit more yeah. human and a little bit, you know, the amount of times, even over the last couple of weeks, where either my little boy, Connor, or, you know, um, the, the children of people I've been um, uh, meeting with, you know, on Zoom or whatever virtual meetings, have strolled in and, you know, come up for a cuddle with mum or dad or asked a question or sat in the back, right? And, and and nobody nobody blinks an eyelid. Whereas six weeks ago, that would have been a oh well, that's a little bit unprofessional, yes. and we would have we probably would have mumbled under our breaths. But now, not only it, does it not raise any eyebrows, it's almost sort of taken as red. And I love that. I think I think that this sort of mask that we sometimes put on. Um, and I've seen people, I'm sure you have too, where you know them and they're, they're a lovely individual and then they stand up to present or they stand up to speak. And all of a sudden it's a completely different person, maybe very wooden or they're reading from, from a script and you're like, well, hang on a second, where, where did your personality go? I think, and I hope that that dynamic is going to shift a little bit and we'll feel more comfortable in our own skin and more comfortable just being who we are. And we can let go of some of the, the artifice. And, and, and I think that's going to be a, a really, really good thing for business. I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing people's lounge rooms now. We're in their kitchens. We're in their dining rooms. We're seeing their kids. And rather than it being depersonalized, there's, there's this wonderful sense of that we're all in it together. We are. And, and it, and it actually has personalized the process. Well, it has. And I'm sitting in my home office and there's a guy next door building a fence. And I don't know if you can hear his, his, his drilling and his nail gun, but that's just the nature of, of the world we're yeah, in now. Yeah. We, we just have to sort of get on with it. And I'm, I'm actually really impressed with how well most people are getting on with it. So with that getting on with it, and I think we will, and things as we record this, it's uh, mid, just about mid-May, so things do look to be getting better. One of the things that's been taken away with us from us with this pandemic is is a sense of certainty. Mm. Like we, we you know, where we certain we we're going to have a job, where we're certain we're going to come out of it. We, we, we lost certainty in terms of um, uh, you know social isolation and one point five. There's a lot of certainty was taken away from us. What do you think uh, great sales professionals can do to bring back that sense of certainty in the sales process? Because in many ways, yes, we're looking for something that works, but what we really want is that assurance of certainty. That's a fantastic question, and and I think it's a really, really interesting one because, you know, in the absence of, of certainty, um, 
lots of things start happening. We, we, we just go, well, you know, let's just, let's just sort of um, mm. shop the market. Let's just, you know, um, change everything because, you know what, nothing's certain. But I actually think that we have the capacity in these uncertain times to provide some level of certainty. So one of the biggest frustrations, and we hear this all the time when we talk to customers, one of the biggest frustrations they have is they go through a sales cycle or a buying cycle or whatever term they use, and they, they actually create a rapport and a connection with the salesperson. And then when they sign on the, on the dotted line, that salesperson disappears and a inverted commas account manager replaces them. And all of a sudden, all of the, the relationship and trust and um, knowledge that that first individual had built up disappears and they have to start effectively you know, retraining this new person who's, who's going to be looking after their business. So I think account management from a sales perspective is going to become a huge point of differentiation. It's already wow. actually a very, very big one, but I think it's mm. going to become an even bigger one um, over the next little while. Maybe we could change the name from account management too. You know, well, I think there's a really good call. I heard a customer recently say something, and um, somebody was talking about the the hunter versus farmer uh, philosophy of sales. So, you know, do we go out and hunt for new Terrible. accounts, or I'm, I, I, yeah? And this person just summed it up perfectly. They said, "I don't want to be someone's prey, but I don't want to be someone's produce either." I want, I want, you know, the best of both worlds. I want to be able to engage with someone who then stays on and looks after me and knows my business and gets to know my business better. And maybe we can deepen the relationship over time. And, and she was making a fantastic point because she was saying, don't look at how you construct your sales team through, through the eyes of you as a vendor. Look at it through my eyes as a customer and what I want, what I need, and what serves my interest best and build out your sales team that way. And, it, you know, that sounds like the most obvious thing in the world, but that is a revelation to most sales organizations because it never crosses their mind to start with the customer and work back uh, in terms of how to construct their team and pay their people and all those other things. Market orientation, market orientation. We don't want a farmer or a hunter. We want someone we can sit down with and have a meal with. That's what we want. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, look, I... I, I um, uh, I, I really love that voice. I just don't know what it is, the lull. I think I've got a man crush on you because of this beautiful voice you have here. And I also have it because I just know what beautiful work you do in the world and how, how positive you are, uh, but, but also how realistic you are. Um, what sort of um, pragmatic optimism can you bring to COVID-19? I mean, is there a silver lining from this whole experience? You've already talked about the, the relationship component. Do you see any other... Uh, gems coming from our current situation. Well, I mean, let me put it in a personal context for a moment. I, you know, I have I have a young family and I run a business, and so those two things are you know not always mutually inclusive. Um, this last period of time has allowed me to spend way more time at home with my kids, interacting, doing home based learning, pretending that I'm the one you know that is the good teacher when clearly it's my wife Shelley. Um, but it's been it's been you know it's been I suppose an adjustment at the start. And now I feel that it's almost um, a question of how long can we keep it going? Because we're really enjoying having this family time together. We might be a little bit institutionalized, I suspect, but, but not in a bad way. So I think reframing, I, I did some coaching calls over the last couple of weeks and three separate salespeople said something really, really interesting to me when I asked them, you know, what, what are your aspirations over the next couple of years? Three separate salespeople from the same organization, you know, said to me, I just want to be happy. And yeah. in, in 20 years in the industry, I don't think one salesperson has ever said that to me when I asked them what their mm. aspirations were or what their growth strategy was or whatever. And it really rocked me back in my heels because 
yeah, I mean, you know, that's a very that's a very small um, sort of segment to be drawing any conclusions from. But the fact that three different salespeople said it to me in a short period of time struck me as very, very interesting. Um, maybe we are reframing in our own minds what constitutes success, and we're realizing that the things that we thought were important aren't, and the stuff that we've been given maybe is a little bit of a gift, and and we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds that's rather beautiful. than hoping that mm. things go back to normal. And once they do. You know, normal wasn't actually as great maybe as we thought it was. No, I mean, you can look at the pollution now. You can look at how much we're connecting and uh, with each other and, and uh, you know, via all sorts of medium just to say hi and just to say that we care. I think you make a, a great point in regard to reframing. Again, one of my favourite movies is The Castle and Daryl Kerrigan, who's, the, who's the, I guess, the lead in that, is reframing everything. I mean, they're right under the flight path of a plane for Pete's sake, but he reframes it as it's just fantastic because if we ever did want to fly, which they haven't at this point, it's just so quick to get to the airport. And and I think that's that's just a, an attitude of life, isn't it, to take what you've, you've got. People say if all you've got is uh, uh, lemons, make lemonade. I, I think my wife has the same. So all you've got lemons and make margaritas. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think my wife might, might share that philosophy. You know, you know there was something that really um, – changed my outlook on i think business and and more broadly on life many many years ago was this concept of what's the worst that can happen you know asking yourself that mm. question and and from a very young age certainly in my career i started asking myself that question because when you're young and you're you're in a in a hierarchical structure in an organization it's very easy to be sort of subdued or to have you you know to be put back in your box because you sort of you, you believe that the hierarchy dictates who, who should have the opinion and whose opinion should be listened to. But I stopped believing that um, and decided that, you know what, I've got a voice. I'm, I'm an adult. I'm, you know, I'm intelligent. I've been educated. So I'll, I'll share my opinion. It doesn't mean it's going to be acted upon, but at least I'll make sure I voice it. And when I started to get some pushback in a couple of places, this realization that the worst that could happen, the absolute worst that could happen is I'd be fired and, and I could yes. deal with that. I could go and get another job. Not that that was likely to happen, but that was the worst. And so that was so freeing in terms of being able to stand your ground, being able to voice your, your opinion, not being you know, kowtowed by someone's position in a hierarchy. And I've maintained that for the rest of my career. When I jumped out of corporate and sat in, you know, in the second bedroom going, what the hell have I done leaving this great job? <laughs> I, I asked myself, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is I, I fail miserably, which is a high probability. And then what do I do? You know, at least I have no regrets and I, and I go out and get a proper job again. And, and that has kept me going all the way through looking at the, the, the worst case scenario, making peace with it as best I can, and then going on and making decisions and taking risks and doing things that might otherwise have seemed just too, too hard to do. And I love that, that, that energy, that utzpah, that sort of, that, that, that it, it's not a, it's, it's not a, a ego driven thing. It's an, it's an, it's an energy driven thing saying, I'll have a go. And as you say, what's the, what's the worst that can happen? Which, which brings me to a pretty important point in sales training too. Much as it's great to learn all sorts of techniques, how to ask questions, how to add value, how to do benefits. I'm convinced that the most successful sales organizations spend a lot of time with their sales force 
helping them to get to know themselves, helping them to get to know their vulnerabilities, helping them to get to know their talents, helping them to get to know their needs so they can really show up as who they are and feel very, very comfortable with that whole concept of, hey, what's the worst that can happen? I think the worst organisations I see uh, do the, the, the opposite. It's all about sales training. It's your function. Uh, rather than yeah. show up it's and the throw function. Up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, ra- rather than who you are. And that's a lovely segue to your to your book, um, which has a subtitle of the, the world of, of sales is evolving, are you? Maybe just tell us a little bit about why you wrote that book and uh, why it would be a, a really great thing to read and um, have as a reference. Look, it's it's interesting. I set out to write a book about win-loss analysis, and I got about halfway through, and I was asked myself the question, who cares? Um, and, and the answer was probably no one. And so I binned that entire manuscript, which was a very hard thing to do, and restarted. And, and actually, the next book, I wouldn't say it wrote itself, but it came out a lot easier because I wrote a book about why are customers making the buying decisions? So what, are, what am I hearing from them? And what does that mean for salespeople in terms of what are the skills they need to get better at? What do they need to do to stay relevant and have a career for the next five or 10 years? And, and I think that was a much more interesting book to write. And, you know, the people I interviewed, both customers and, and sales professionals, um, brought a, a ton of richness to that. But also, I think it's one which, as a sales professional or a sales leader or, or someone who owns a business, because let's be honest, you know, we're kind of all in sales in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. It, it, it made it much more interesting because it's it, it's informed by the perspective of customers. And, you know, I mentioned that we've been doing win-loss reviews for, for nearly a decade, and I continue to be surprised um, by what influences customers and the things that frustrate them. And you kind of alluded to it a moment ago. I, I thought in my heart of hearts that most deals, product and price are, you know, are going to be, you know, one of the top two or three decision criteria, hands down. Nobody could, nobody could disagree with me on that. And actually, that that's proven to be not the case at all. What I've learned is that product and price is incredibly important, but it's important up to a point. It tends to get you from the long list of vendors being considered to the short list of vendors being considered. And once you've got from the long list to the short list, effectively you've ticked the product box, you've ticked the price box, and then the customers in their mind saying, what else have these people got for me? And immediately it pivots to, to people and to purpose. So what do you like to work with? Culturally, do we like you? Do we get you? Do you get us? Do you understand us? Who else do we know that's worked with you and what do they think? What do you like when the, when the shit hits the fan? Will you stick around? Mm. Will you be good to mm. work with? Or are you going to disappear? What about your culture? What about the things that you stand for over and above making a profit? Have we got any connection there? Have we got any alignment there? There's all of this stuff which really really amazed me which is actually incredibly important in terms of when we pull the trigger and we say yes we're going to go with these folks and not with these folks and and i mean you made a really good point we we should be training our salespeople much more around that sort of empathy emotional intelligence and intuition asking great questions doing discovery but a lot of businesses still are missing a trick there and they're focusing more on how well do you know your product and the competitive landscape and how well can you have a conversation around the bits and the bytes and to to some point that is important but after a point it loses its relevance and if you've got nothing else when it comes to the people and the pro- and, and the purpose conversation you're going to struggle it's uh i always remember the words of shakespeare this above all to that own self be true and again it's why salespeople more than anyone else need to know who they are what they stand for their values i love the statement your values determine your character but in the end it's your character 
that will determine your value. And I think what we've said today is just how important it is uh, for you to be the right person at the right time, asking the right questions with, with that genuine right uh, customer care. And I can think of no one better than yourself, Keen, to be able to do that. So uh, at the end of this uh, uh, podcast here, we'll certainly give some details for uh, people to get in touch with you. Any other little gems before we sign off? You know, in, in a world where, where sales has a negative perception, um, where we think of, of, of the used car dealership or we think of, you know, the door-to-door salesperson, I want the sales profession to, to um, have, a, have a different image. I want people to be proud to say that they work in the world of sales. I want their kids to, you know, to be proud and to aspire to, to maybe have a, a job in the industry one day. And I think the best way we can do that is, you know, a, riding t- a rising tide lifts all boats. So if we, yes. as, a, a, as individuals and collectively, start to do the right thing, and I think we are, and I think, you know, the vast majority of people are, I think over the next couple of years, the advent of the internet has been great because the balance of power has shifted completely to customers. They have all the information, they have all the power, they have all the control. And that's a great thing because, you know, the the, the small number of, of shunky charlatans are getting found out and they're getting you know, they're getting booted from the industry. I think as an industry, we, we should be on a par with, with many of the under the other professions that people aspire to when they're young. And, and I think I can think of nothing better than, you know, going to a group of young people in school and saying, what, what do you want to do when you grow up? And at least a couple of them saying, yeah, I wouldn't mind working in sales. I think that'd be a pretty good, pretty good. Fact. In fact, I, I think that uh, I've been so bold as to tell them we've over the years, I think I've worked with more than two, three, almost 5,000 graduates, and they'll often ask, what do you think is a great career path? And I will say, irrespective of the function that you were trained with the uni, go, go get a job in selling, get a job in selling. Um, so I think uh, if there's a statement I could say that would sum this all up, it would be uh, the fact that we uh, none of us like to be sold, but the world we're in is that we do like to buy we like to buy, and the job of the great salesperson is to really help people buy, help people make great choices with integrity, with authenticity, and with with genuine care and sincerity. And uh, and so I think those words really sum you up. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, hopefully, by the time our listeners get this, uh, things will will have eased a little bit, and they'll take the lessons away and apply them to their life, either as a salesperson or as a person of influence. So uh, again, Kian, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Mitch. It's been a pleasure. Well done, Kian. We've certainly covered a lot of ideas here. The importance of authenticity in sales, starting with empathy before presenting value, having a growth mindset, win-loss reviews. In fact, I know that Kian's on a personal crusade to make sure that every organisation does some sort of win-loss review be it with external support or internally, because it's all about the customer. Again, thanks for listening to Leaders for Life Radio. I'll leave you now to do your own win-loss review. And remember, find the passion, develop the skills, make the numbers, and make a difference.